welcome to the Champs App Podcast, where we help players and parents demystify the world of minor hockey development and recruiting for both girls and boys. On today's episode, I talk with NHL sports psychologist, Dr. Amy Kimball. We go into great detail on how to achieve peak performance in women's hockey, how to play with confidence, and developing productive on and off ice routines. This was one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded, so I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Before we get to today's amazing episode, I wanted to talk to you about the app part of Champs App. Did you know that there are over 30 NCAA coaches with Champs App profiles that you can connect with directly? These include coaches from every D1 conference. Champs App lets you create a free, beautiful online hockey resume to share with coaches, teams, and players. Your profile includes all the information coaches want to know to help decide if you are a player they want to keep on their recruiting radar. When you connect with coaches, they will receive automatic updates when you change your profile, add game or video, or alert them to upcoming games on your schedule. Just go to champs.app and click the sign up button to start your profile. You can check out the full list of the NCAA coaches using Champs app by clicking on the links in the show notes. I'm very excited to have on the podcast, Dr. Amy Kimball, who is the president of Capex Consulting, a firm whose goal is to create a mindset and culture that leads to success for teams and individuals. Dr. Kimball has a PhD specializing in sports psychology and is currently the Senior Director of Team and Organizational Development for the Washington Capitals. Previously, she worked with the New Jersey Devils and Pittsburgh Penguins on mental performance, including being part of the Penn's 2009 and 2016 Stanley Cup teams. In addition, she's also helped teams in the NFL and NBA and recently earned a silver medal as the mental performance coach for the USA Women's Olympic team in 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thanks for having me today. Hey, so did I get all that right in, in your uh, background? Yeah, yeah. 17 years of doing this. There's a lot to cover, but I think you hit the high points. Well, that's awesome. So I, I know you, um, you know, you, you came interested in sports psychology in high school because you played baseball, softball, and, and soccer, and you love sports. Um, and then you discovered psychology. So what was it about sports psychology that fascinated you um, in high school? Yeah, so I had, like you said, I did three sports in high school, and I just had a real passion for athletics, and I was taking a psychology class, and I just thought everything about the mind was fascinating, especially when you talk about motivation and confidence and anxiety, and I was reading an article one time, it was in a soccer magazine, and it was written by a sports psychologist, and it was the first time that I ever knew this field existed. And so I told my parents I wanted to learn more. They bought me a book. I read it and was hooked. And for me, what I really like about the field of sports psychology is that it's to help people reach their potential. So a lot of times when you think of psychology, it's there's something wrong with me that I need to fix. And I try to take a different perspective of the mind is one of your strongest tools and your biggest assets. And so if you really you learn to strengthen it and use it, you can make sure that you're getting as close as you can to your potential if you're doing everything else. So really getting people to understand that the mind is a tool. And then within that, there's times where people aren't performing their best. So talking to them about that. But I just like the idea of combining sport, combining my interest in psychology and the fact that I could help people. Those were three things that really hooked me in. Gotcha. And, and where was your interest in helping people, you know, at that time at like 16, 17, 18 years of age versus just just being fascinated by learning about it? Like, because obviously now you're, you're, you're an expert in actually helping people. But back then, was that something that you, you wanted to do since, you know, you didn't have a lot of knowledge or experience or, or working with people at that point? 
Yeah, I did. I think I'm sort of a helper by nature. So I'm, I was always the person people would go to when they had trouble. And as teenage girls, there was a lot of people coming to me to just talk things through. And I was both a good listener as well as a good talker. And I know even for my basketball team in high school, I would be the one to give pregame talks or I every game I'd put a motivational quote on the door right out before we hit warm up. So there was always some aspect of it that I was doing. And I just knew I had thought about child psychology for a little bit, um, but I knew that would be really hard to take that back all of the time. And so I just liked the idea of getting people where they could get to and giving them that resource. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I know you then went on to study undergrad at Penn State. So are, are you a fan of the women's hockey team at Penn State that uh, just played in their first uh, uh, playoffs for the yeah. NCAA? Yeah, so when I was there, it was just a club team. Even their men's team was just a club team, so I'm quite a bit older. Um, but, yeah, I think it's great to see how far the program has come, and I'll always be a Penn State fan no matter where I am. Gotcha, gotcha. But at the so time, I chose – yeah, I was just going to say, at the time, I chose Penn State for college because they were one of the few universities that actually had a sports psychologist working with their sports team. It wasn't a very big field. And so it was a relatively easy decision as my whole family went to Penn State. Um, plus, they had the, a resource there for me and to pursue something that I was interested in. That's fabulous. fabulous. And then you, you, you uh, really further pursued your education by going to Miami, Ohio for, for some grad work. And then you got your Ph.D. at, at Tennessee. And then uh, you returned to Pennsylvania. So um, I, I know you live in Pittsburgh now, and um, that's kind of where you got your start. I was wondering, how did you get into working with professional sports teams? Um, I know you were working at the UPMC Lemieux Sports Complex. Um, you know, I've been there for hockey games. So, like, were you in the sports complex? And it was, like, Mario coming off the ice from, like, a pickup game. And did you just start talking? And he said, hey, why don't you come out and talk to, uh, talk to the Penguins? Is that how it all happened? No, but it was, it was almost as easy. I hate to say it. But so because all of my life I, I knew what I wanted to do. I made sure I was going out and pursuing experiences and opportunities that would prepare me for that. I actually never thought I was going to be working in pro sport. I always thought it would be college. Um, but like you said, I was working in the sports medicine at center at the time. Um, it was in the South side though. It wasn't the Lemieux complex was relatively new for us. And so I was in the South side near the Steelers facility, but we were the medical providers for the Penguins. And one day I got a phone call asking if I would come and talk at their development camp. So I went down, I spoke to their new draft picks and their young players and their minor league coach for Wilkes-Barre at the time came up and asked if I'd work with their minor league team. And then I said, yeah. And then it just started from there. And no one's ever fired me. So 17 years later, I'm still <laughs> with pro hockey. And it's actually funny because I, I didn't play hockey growing up. We didn't really have that many opportunities where I'm from. And I can actually barely skate. And so working with hockey was not something even remotely in my wheelhouse that I thought I would be doing. But I actually think it was helpful for me because my experiences were I was really open to listening and learning and talking to these players and just helping them with what they needed. And so I wasn't bringing my experiences of having played to them. I was allowing them to talk about their experiences, which I think is really important when you're looking at working with um, athletes and mental skills and sports psychology is that you get to really understand each individual. And it's not about what you were like as an athlete. It's about who they are and what they do. 
Yeah, and, 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 and as what you're saying, and my understanding is, is that it's listening to, to who they are and kind of developing them as the individual to be the best they can be, as opposed to whatever their coach wants them to be or the organization, et cetera. Is that correct? Um, no, it's a little bit of both. So yeah. you do have to understand like what the player thinks, but a lot of times, especially as young players, they've been told one thing from their parents. This is who they're going to be. This is the way they're going to play wherever they came from. This is what their coach there thinks. But then when you get to the next level, so whether it's pro or college, you have to adjust. You have to be willing to adapt if you want to continue. So if you were always a scorer when you were in high school and came easy to you, well, if you're now a college player or a pro player, that might not be your role on this team, at least right away. So you have to learn to play maybe a more defensive game. You have to learn other aspects of the game too. So part of it is listening to the player, but then also understanding what the coach and the scouts see as this player is going to be and helping the player adapt to that next phase in life. And I think that's a big part of what I do. So Yes, it's mental skills, but it's also player development and getting them gotcha. to realize that they need to be open-minded and listen to feedback from other people. Awesome. Okay, so um, I know you've done amazing work with uh, the New Jersey Devils and the, the Binghamton Farm Team, and now you're with the Washington Capitals and work with the Hershey Bears. Um, we can go and talk about that for another hour separately. But given who our audience is, I really want to kind of move over to the girls and women's side of things. Um, how did you end up working with the USA women's hockey team and the Olympic team for 2022? Um, that was just some luck and being at the right place in the right time as well. I was doing um, a Zoom conference, a workshop for coaches uh, through the NHL Coaches Association. And so they get a lot of coaches from Europe, from colleges. And Katie Million, who is the general manager of the U.S. women's team, happened to be on the call. And she emailed me, I think before I was even done with the workshop, and asked if I'd be interested in interviewing for this opportunity. And there was no way I was going to turn it down. So I was on board from the get-go. Um, so it was, I think she liked what I was talking about at the time and they happened to be looking for somebody. So it was right time, right place. Awesome. Okay. So I'm, I'm very curious, what, what was the, in your experience, what's the difference between helping with mental performance between women hockey players and, and male hockey players? Not a whole lot. I, I think that the things that elite athletes, regardless of if they're males or females, have to deal with and cope with, particularly as they're performing on a higher stage, there's a whole lot of similarities. I think what I found is one thing that's interesting about the women, um, they're representing their country and they're representing their gender. So when you look at U.S. hockey in particular, the women's team is kind of the epitome of what their careers are. And so this means a lot to them and they, they really understand the weight of that opportunity and what they're representing. And I think sometimes with NHL players, yes, they're representing their teams, but they're not necessarily thinking about representing their gender or representing their country all the time. And so that elite level for the women, I think was, um, you know, they carry that with them, but they carry it really well. And I think that's a major motivation for a lot of them to make sure they are taking it seriously every day. They're focused, they're dialed in, and they're doing their best. And it was honestly so impressive to watch how they trained and what they do and their their care and concern for each other as well. Gotcha. And, and 
Um, I've had several guests who are now coaches in uh, Division One who either were on the Olympic team and, and, and won medals, or some of them who just missed it and just missed the cut, and some of them who even tried to make it back to the national team after getting cut. And they all talk about the huge stress of making the team. And I know you were helping out in Blaine, Minnesota, as the players were centralized, and some players were, were advancing and some of them were cut. Maybe you can just talk about like some of the challenges that the players have from a mental performance perspective as they're going through that multi-month process to go through the selection process. Yeah, it's such a balance because they're competing with each other, but they're also competing against each other for these spots. And organizationally, it's a challenge because you're trying to build this sense of team and camaraderie because it is a short period of time to get yourselves gelled as a team. But then in the back of everybody's mind is always that little bit of fear until the team has announced that they could get cut. So while it keeps them on their toes, it's also, it can create a more stressful environment than it needs to. So really making sure that every player can just focus on doing their best and less about, I have to make this team and more training, doing their best every day. And it is, I think it is challenging. So for some women, they know this could be their last shot. And for others, they know they're a long shot because it might be their first year even having this experience. And so trying to get every player to put the circumstances to the side and just focus on their performance is um, always an interesting task. Yeah. And how did you deal with that? Because um, like, or, or did you help uh, some of these players that didn't make that last cut, you know, they were, they were going to be very young players. They were college players who ended up just not making the cut. Um, and plus it was COVID going on. So, you know, they, they couldn't even actually travel with the team to, to, to Beijing. Like, were you helping them kind of deal with not making the team and kind of how to accept it? And, you know, and by the way, they then couldn't play college hockey because it was, it was too late for them to go back to, to playing. Like, are those the kind of things that you would help players with of, of, dealing with the mental challenges of, of that situation? Yeah, so I can't really talk specifically about who I helped and what I did, but that is part of why they brought me on is to be that support person for anybody that needed it. So whether it was a player who made the team and they're excited about it and nervous about it and all the, there was a lot of fear and anxiety just that especially leading up through COVID, I mean, I know I had it and I hadn't trained my entire life for this experience of just, you just didn't want to test positive. And there was, there was just a lot that went into that. Um, it was a unique experience. And then, yeah, there was people that didn't make it and it was a not necessarily last minute, but it was, you know, they trained a lot. They put in the same amount of effort that everybody else did. And then at the end of it, they didn't get the outcome that they wanted. And so, you know, I think for some girls, they had family and friends and even teammates they could talk to about this. And for other people, I could be there as their support system if they needed it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you for kind of explaining how that all works and, and how to think about it. Um, so one of the unique things about the Olympics and, and, kind of more similar to college hockey, is that there's basically one game that you, you got to win. Um, it's not a best of seven series like it is in the NHL, even though I, I do think for, for until other countries get better at their women's uh, teams, it actually should be like a best of five or a best of seven for the gold medal between Canada and the U.S. Um, what are some of the unique mental performance opportunities to help the players with for that situation where it's, it's a winner-take-all game? Well, it doesn't just start when you get to the Olympics, it's everything leading up to that. And so leading up to it, they had 
several games, a lot against Canada, where they would compete against them um, and sort of test their lineups, test their strengths and weaknesses. And so they had those opportunities to assess themselves as well as their opponent. And so getting every player to just focus on what do you need to do to be your best regardless of the situation. And so throughout that year, talking a lot about that and being prepared to sort of meet that moment where, you know, hopefully you you do get to that final game, but it's not about that game. It's knowing you've prepared for that game. And so you can't just wait and say, okay, now I'm going to do visualization the night before and I'll be good to go. It's really, they spend a lot of time physically preparing so regularly mentally preparing too. So we would do Zoom calls um, every couple of weeks with the team. And sometimes they were individually oriented where they'd have tasks to do. Sometimes they were more team oriented where we would discuss certain things as a team, but a lot was focusing on building that mindset over time so that when the big game came, they knew they were ready for it. And we, um, we were able to put together a video for them to help them visualize themselves for every game. And so really kind of thinking about what it was going to be like to be in the, in the locker room, getting dressed, getting ready, and then walking down the hallway to the ice. And so preparing that visualization for them. And we were able to get a little bit of footage of the arena ahead of time too. So we put all of that together. Um, and so that was a fun mental training project for us too, is just, putting that all together and building that mindset for them. So um, so congratulations on winning silver, but I'm sure that is uh, not the, the color of medal that uh, the, the team wanted. Um, so I'm just wondering, as, as you reflect back on it, you know, how much of it is um, the, the loss associated with kind of the skill, the coaching, the mental preparedness, um, just luck, which uh, hockey is a huge amount of luck. Like when you go back and look back on it, like is, is there anything on the mental side of things that you think, hey, maybe we could have done more in this area that would have prepared us or maybe it was just the factors that were out of, uh, out of the team's control? Well, I, I think anytime you lose, you always look back and say, I wish I would have, or I could have done this. And that's part of the preparation is making sure that when you get there, you know, you did everything you could. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the better team. Unfortunately, we had a big loss at the beginning of the uh, Olympics um, where one of our captains went down. And so that was, you know, to see Decker go down, she was a, a big part of the team and kind of the heart of the team as well. And so I think, that certainly played into it, but we had lots of women step up and be able to fill that role. And the team was able to say, okay, well, this is a challenge. We knew it wasn't going to be easy. We knew we were going to have to be resilient. And so they were they were mentally ready for a lot of that, but I think physically it is hard to adapt to that. But when you do look at the success of a team, it's everything. It's everything from your equipment staff, your coaching staff. We had excellent nutritionists there. I mean, everybody plays some small part in helping that team, but ultimately it's the players themselves. And whether you're an NHL team, whether you're Olympic team, high school team, you're gonna have all these resources available to you. And it's up to each individual player to say, I'm going to make the most of these resources that are given to me. And so I think the, the women's team, the committee did a great job of saying, here's everything that you could need, let's go be successful. And I think given what they had, the, the players really did use these resources the best that they could. 
Gotcha. Yeah. And, and losing Brianna Decker was, was a huge deal, uh, obviously, in, the, in, in early on in, in the tournament. So, but speaking of Brianna Decker, and uh, also you had Hillary Knight on the team, you had some great players. Um, I'd like to kind of shift the conversation now to what makes players great. I know you've talked about competitiveness is really important and grit. Um, and uh, maybe you can talk about, you know, what it takes to be competitive versus ego. Um, because, uh, you know, I see a lot of competitive players with a lot of ego and I see a lot of competitive players, you know, with, uh, they'll do whatever it takes to, to, for the team. Yeah. And I think you need both of that because I think you need pride in your own performance, which some people mistake as ego. Like I have to be the best, but I think it's, I have to be the best I can be. And I think that for me, that part of the ego is important. Like you want to have so much pride in what you do that no one's going to stand in your way. And on the flip side of that, it's not about you, but it's about how you can contribute to this long, larger group. And so that's that team aspect of I'll do whatever it takes. And so when you look at particularly the Olympic team, you're taking the best players from all these teams across the U.S. and then making a super team. And so you've got a whole lot of first-line players, and some of those players are now playing less minutes, fourth lines, different roles than they're used to for their college teams. So just there, they have to sacrifice ice time. They have to sacrifice maybe some scoring opportunities because their role is different. And so I think to when you're part of an elite team, you'll have to make a sacrifice one way or the other. It doesn't matter if you're the top player or fourth-line player or you might not see a lot of ice time. Everybody is sacrificing and everybody is willing to say, I'll do whatever it takes. And so I do think competitiveness at any level, I don't care if you're a 10-year-old or if you're an Olympic player, NHL player, you have to be competitive. And to me, that means I'm going to do everything I can to go out here and be my best and win this game. And so sometimes that is sacrificing, sometimes that's playing hard, sometimes that's just bearing down and getting that goal when it needs to happen. Um, but that, that's something that needs to happen. Um, grit, like you said, that resilience, I think is really important. If you had a bad shift, not letting it bother you, being able to park it to the side and come back and really say, okay, this shift, what do I wanna do? It doesn't matter what I did last shift, it matters what I do right now. Um, and something that impressed me about these women was their attention to detail. So even in working with AHL players, NHL players, the, these women don't get by on size alone. Some of them can get by on speed because we have some really fast players, but they've always had to be skilled, particularly at this level. A lot of them have played with boys throughout their career. So they're not usually the, the biggest on the ice. So they've learned how to to take care of the details, pay attention to details so that they can beat them with their skill. So there's a really high level of skill and doing all of the little things that maybe the male players at other levels have gotten by without, and then they don't actually learn it sometimes till their AHL year, they have to undo some bad habits. So a lot of these women just do the right things at the right time all of the time. And I think that's something, especially when you're looking at high school girls, what they really need to focus on are those little details that they can fine tune their game overall. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so we're gonna come back to a couple of topics that you you just mentioned, but I, I still wanna stick with competitive for a second. Um, I've, I've heard you mention on other podcasts that 
um, at least at the dra NHL draft level, you can't teach competitiveness. But I have had a couple of skills coaches who have been on here that, that work with girls ages, you know, 10 to 15. And part of what they found is that early on, they might be a little bit timid and they actually do need to teach competitiveness. Do you think you can teach competitiveness at th that younger um, girls hockey ages? I think you can teach competitive behaviors. Like you can teach them how to get after the puck. You can teach them how to, like you said, if they're scared, how to not be scared. But I think there's this innate quality where I'm going to do what it takes to, to get the puck. I'm going to do what it takes to win this game. And so I think there's a competitive attitude and competitive behavior. So you might have a girl that is actually really competitive, but she's scared of getting hurt. Sometimes it's scared of, well, what if I don't win the puck? And then right. I get beat. How's that going to be? And so that doesn't mean she's not competitive. That means she's afraid. And so I think a lot of times when you're assessing players and where scouts are looking at them, they'll say, oh, she's not competitive. Well, she is, but there's another layer that's keeping her back. And so that's where people like me come in is really understanding, like, is this a competitive player? And can we bring out the behaviors she needs to really show how competitive she is. That's but right. I, I have three young kids and they're 12, 10, and 8. And I can tell you by about six, seven years old, I can tell you my daughter is one of the most competitive people I've ever met. And then you can just see it in your kids, like how much they care. It doesn't matter what they're playing. They want to win. Perfect. So at, um, one of the challenges, though, is developing confidence in these hockey players, because when they play with confidence, it's really noticeable. And when they play without confidence, it's also really noticeable. What, what are some kind of tricks to, to helping maintain confidence and, and not lose it? Assuming you're getting the support you need, you're not getting beaten down by your coach every time you screw up. Yeah, well, I think a lot of times when players use confidence, it's because they change their focus. So they're focusing more on mistakes. They're focusing more on what other people are thinking about them. But for a lot of players who, if they're good and you ask them, are you a good player? They, you know, one of the things about hockey players is all very humble. They have trouble admitting that they're good, but that's one of the things that I try to get them to do is say, yeah, I can, I can hold my own. I'm a good player. And to me, that's confidence is knowing you have the ability. So then it becomes, okay, you know, you're good. What's keeping you from performing that way or what's keeping you from believing your skills are going to show them up when you need them to. And so that becomes, a, are you focusing on the right things at the right time rather than doubting your abilities? And so when you talk about confidence, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, they're a confident player. It's they believe in themselves, but what's holding them back from getting that performance that they want? And so ways to build it are looking at past performances, focusing on what they do well, simplifying the game, and I always talk to them about making a list of the things they need to do to play well. So it might be moving their feet, following their shots, finishing their checks, and then just saying, can you do these things? If this is the list you need to do to play well, are you capable of doing this? And do you control whether or not you do it? And then they're usually able to check off all these things from their list and then say, okay, all you have to do is that and you'll play well. And it takes out all of the things they don't control, all of the negative focus that they had, and it keeps their mind on, I know I can do these things, I'll be fine today. And so it's a really easy way to get them to be confident is just kind of clear out the clutter of the things they're focusing on that they don't need to be.
Gotcha. So, uh, so that makes a lot of sense for how to think about confidence and getting them to actually do that. That's kind of the, the hard part, I guess. Of, of, of doing yeah, this right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, it takes uh, some time, particularly, I was just going to say, like, especially when you're looking at high school girls, there's so much comparison. They're always thinking about themselves compared to everybody else. And parents do it too. Oh, you're so much better than she is. I don't know why she gets more ice time. And that comparison often can kill their confidence because they're so worried about others and how am I compared to them instead of how good can I be? Am I being that player all of the time right now? And then what's my next step and how do I get there? And so I think as players and as parents, making sure you can get your athlete to just focus on herself and not worry about what everybody else is doing. As hard as that is to do, but yes, I, I, I got yeah. it. <laughs> All right. I, I, so now I'd like to get into really kind of some tactical things um, that I've seen over the last few years. Um, some of them are like specific to, to what I've seen on my kids' teams, not necessarily my kids. Um, and and I like to ask you some questions about them from a mental perspective. So um, ever since my kids were like in squirts, there's always one player on the team who always goes offside, who can't hold themselves back on the blue line and and has to like get in before the puck does. And, you know, it happens once, twice a game, et cetera, et cetera, every game. So like, what's an example of how to handle that from a mental perspective, or even maybe it's like the coaching perspective on, on how to, how to coach that player. Well, I think video would probably be really useful for them to be able to see where they are in relation to everybody else. I'm kind of looking at just their, their spatial awareness. Do you know where you are in relation to the puck, the players, the blue line, and, and making sure they get that? And I do think that's a lot of coaching too, of that player might just be a little bit faster than everybody else, so it's hard to hold them back. So teaching them skills about timing and making sure that they're timing everything correctly, because you don't want them to have to just stop cold. So I, I think that there's a lot of coaching involved with that. Um, but I think showing them on video would be really helpful too. And letting them know that you don't have to be the first one there, but like you, you have to be patient sometimes. And, and that some does come with age and experiences and maybe getting called off sides three times in a game will help them realize <laughs> they can't do it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that relates to kind of a related question is, you know, just making mental errors, like, you know, passing the puck to the other team or, you know, just getting rid of the puck before you should, or, or just completely missing the net on a shot. Like some of the, some things are, are truly mental errors. What, what are the kind of, of uh, advice do you give to players that, that kind of have those recurring uh, mistakes that they make that are really kind of self well, I think, Yeah. One, they're kids, so they should be making mistakes. If yeah. they're not making mistakes, they're not challenging themselves. So I think that's important too, is getting them to realize like that's okay and it's part of learning. And that that is how kids learn, is when they screw up, okay, don't do that again. And sometimes it takes them a little bit longer to really realize like, oh yeah, that is me, that is my fault. Um, so one is the accountability piece of it too, is realizing like, oh, that was me, I can't blame it on somebody else. And I think that's something parents need to be aware of because we tend to try to make our kids feel better about mistakes and push the blame on somebody else instead of saying, no, you screwed that up. It's okay. You screwed it up. What did you learn from it? Um, and so I think that's something is making sure they're accountable and understand that, but also looking at when they're making these mistakes. Is it at the end of a period when they're tired? Because then that would be basically the way the brain works is when you're tired, 
it's harder to think, it's harder to process things like emotions and you go more on habits and reaction. And so if they're getting tired at the end of a period and that's when a lot of their mistakes happen, they probably need to get in better shape. Um, sometimes it's nutrition too. So maybe they're not drinking enough. Maybe they didn't eat before the game. Maybe they do need a little snack in between periods or when they're on the bench just to keep that energy up so that mentally they can process things. Um, sometimes it's pressure. So they make bad decisions because they're thinking about not messing up or they feel a lot of stress and anxiety. And again, your thinking starts to, to break down and the part of your brain that's just reacting on habit, that's what goes. And so it's really important for kids to develop the right habits. So under pressure, that's what comes out. And so one thing that can help is really in practicing putting kids in pressure situations so they can make the right decisions, even if they're a little bit of anxious. Um, having two minute drills, one minute drills where they have to score with not a lot of time left or they have to defend with not a lot of time left, but really getting them to feel that in a practice scenario. So in a game scenario, they make the right decisions too. I think coaches too, you know, usually at the end of practices, practice gets a little bit easier, but I think you actually can make it mentally harder. So it doesn't necessarily have to be physically harder at the end, but when kids are tired, when their attention spans are down, that's where you want to really train them to make the right decision is when they're tired. And so I would put in coaching, I would put drills at the end of practice that are mentally challenging. They'll probably mess them up over and over, but eventually that's going to help them make those correct decisions um, in a game scenario. That's beautiful. You actually just completely stole my question on uh, how, how to deal with decision making when you're tired. So that's that's perfect. Um, but you did talk, talk uh, mention briefly uh, emotions. Um, you know, I, I've also seen on my kids' teams there's uh, usually some very good player who um, who has high expectations of themselves, but they. Uh, display a lot of anger or frustration when they aren't succeeding. Um, things like trying to break their stick over their head, or coming to the bench and slamming, uh, you know, the door. Things like that. Um, what, what are what, you know, how would you work with a player, you know, that that's that's having those kind of challenges and and dealing with with a lot of emotions. Yeah, well, one, if my kid broke his stick, I'd make him pay for a new one because as parents, they're not cheap. And that's one thing that they need to throw something, make it a water bottle, not a, a broken stick. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about kids, there are emotions. And I I like emotion. Like some people, I like watching players on the bench as they come off a bad shift. Because if they just sit down like it's no big deal, how much do they really care? So a little bit of emotion is a good thing. You want them to care. You actually want them to be a little bit angry and pissed off if they screwed up. Um, what concerns me is if it's a teammate that screws up and they're angry at them and they're taking out their frustration on them, that can really hurt the teammate psyche because I'm already mad at myself and now my teammate's mad at me too. So that can hurt confidence. It can hurt focus. It can hurt their decision-making. But if it's a player who's getting frustrated at herself, of really teaching her some skills that she can use to control that. So coming off the bench, processing, whether it was a good shift or bad shift, having a, a post-shift routine. Here's what I did well. Here's what I didn't do well. Here's what how I want to play the next time I'm on the ice. And so some players need kind of that first 10, 20 seconds after they get off the ice to be angry. But then after that, it's, okay, what am I going to do to refocus myself? So having a, a routine to say, here's the play I'm going to be when I get out there. So the emotion isn't bad, but it's learning 
how to control it, and how to make sure it doesn't negatively impact your next shift. Because it's also the same with positive emotions. You just scored a goal, you're excited, now maybe your team is up by two or three, and then you relax because now it's like, okay, I, I don't have that sense of urgency I did before. And so sometimes really good shifts end up turning into a bad shift because you relax, you don't have the same intensity. So the key is more when I play my best, what's my focus, what's my intensity, what's my energy level, and recreating that. But I think little things like taking a deep breath, having routines when you're on the bench, um, those kind of things can make a big difference. And, and also um, looking at before games too, why they are putting this pressure on themselves too. So I think that's something to to look into as well with players. Can you give me an example? Because I, I love this, of, of some kind of routine to do um, between shifts. Like, because you only get like, you know, depending on how good a player you are, you maybe, you know, 45 seconds to a minute or up to two and a half minutes, depending on, on where you are in the lineup and how many players you got. But is, is there an example of, you know, a routine you can do for um, between shifts? Yeah, so super simple, like different people have different things that they do. But we always like in sports psychology, a big phrase we use is, be where your feet are, which is your body's always physically in the present moment. Your mind can be in the future, it can be in the past, but your body is physically right here. So anything that you do that connects you to kind of the physical present can help take your mind off of what just happened. So just really simply like banging your skates off the ground and saying, be here to yourself. Um, you'll see players they might just clean the ice off their, their blade and that's kind of, okay, I'm gonna clear that away. Some players will take a glove off, put it back on, um, any little thing like that. You'll see goalies sometimes squirt themselves in the face and then sometimes they wash it away, sometimes they just let it wash away. Um, I'll tell goalies like clean the ice in front of them or if a goal was scored, just skate to the corner and put that in the corner and then when you get back to your crease, be right there. And so there's lots of just little things that you can do where it's do something physical that you couple with something mental. So allows you to bring you back into the present. Yeah. And I see goalies skate over to the corner all the time when I'm uh, standing behind the net uh, watching the game. Yeah, so, And a lot uh, of times so. they just, they do it out of habit. And I try to yeah. teach them, hey, you're doing it anyway. Now, when you do it, just put whatever's happened in the game over in the corner. Don't worry about it. And then when you're back in your crease, like this is your spot, this is where your focus is going to be. Beautiful. So um, I always like to ask one goalie question on on every uh, every podcast. Um, so one thing that I've noticed um, over watching hockey for the last 20 years or so is that goalies run hot and cold. And so sometimes they're in the zone and sometimes they're, they're fighting with the puck. Um, how does a mental performance coach help with those situations, especially on the lows when, you know, they're, they're, they're really struggling and, you know, they're not in, in a groove? Yeah, so a lot of times when, in talking with goalies, what I find that they say is less shots isn't necessarily better. Like it's easier to get in the flow when they're seeing more shots. It's when they haven't seen shots for a while that is almost more challenging for them. And there are some days where, they've played back-to-back -back games, they're physically tired, maybe they didn't get a great night's sleep, where they're going to feel off that day. But the idea with goalies is you still have to battle and your job is to stop the puck. And so really keeping it simple and those habits that you have as a goalie, how you track the puck, how you communicate with your teammates, those little things will make it easier. And so sometimes for goalies, it's just have something that you do that allows you to say, 
okay, I'm here, I'm back, I'm ready to go. And so that being able to clear your mind and not getting in your own way is important. And so within practices, like there might be a practice that's not going well, sometimes they'll sort of stop practice, take a break. You wanna teach them how to play through that too. So that because in games, they can't always just take a break whenever they want, they need to learn to play through it. And so it's saying, it's just admitting like, today's tough, but I can still do it. Um, and then the easy days are easy and the tough days, it's like, okay, I'm gonna have to battle today. And they just accept they can still do it, even though it's a little bit harder. But the more they start doubting and questioning themselves, then that kind of adds to the weight that they're carrying and makes it even harder. Yeah, yeah, and that's where you come in to, to kind of help them work through that and all that stuff, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, so uh, in girls hockey, um, especially in kind of newer areas to, to, to playing hockey in the country, there are not a lot of great coaches, and, and a lot of them are kind of old-school coaches, and so I've seen it quite a bit that some some players actually are, are – um, playing with fear and anxiety of making mistakes because their coaches won't let them make the mistakes. You know, they're, they've told, told them to, you know, dump the puck in and go chase it as opposed to trying to make a play. And, and so how do you work with these players um, or, or what advice do you have for players where they're trying to break these bad habits that have kind of, kind of been um, taught to them in, you know, peewees, and now they're playing at a higher level at, at the older age groups, that they're trying to avoid fear of making a mistake and disappointing their coaches. Yeah, well, a lot of times with those players, it's being able to say, look, your, your coach is going to pull you one way or the other. So if you're going to get pulled, at least go down playing the way you want to be playing. And, and so kind of talking to them about if you play with fear, how does that change your game? Whereas if you recognize, hey, I might make a mistake and my coach is going to put me on the bench, but I also might play really well and it'll allow me to get more ice time and contribute. And so you'd rather go down sort of playing the best that you can, make a mistake and say, hey, if that's the way the coach wants to coach, there's nothing I can do about it. And so it's really not focusing on, I want to play to not make a mistake. It's I want to play to help this team. And it goes back to the competitive nature of things. If you're playing to win, you're focusing on what do I need to do to help the team? What do I need to do to play my best? But if you're not as competitive or you're planning not to lose, then you are worrying about what the coach thinks. And so it's getting people to realize that I play better when I'm competitive. I play better probably when I'm more aggressive, when I'm playing smart, not safe, and getting them to you know, kind of process some of the things that they're afraid of and realize that's going to be there whether you're afraid or not. So you might as well focus on what you need to do to play well. And so again, it goes back to the routines that they have, the mindset they want. Sometimes it's just something physical that they do. And talking about if you just stay moving, if you just move your feet the whole time, everything else will click. I've had players that are really hesitant. They're afraid to make mistakes and they have all this self-doubt. And so one of the things I tell them, just go out and sing a song in your head. Like stop thinking, sing a song and just let yourself play. Like let your body know what it needs to do and tell your brain to just be quiet for a little bit. And so singing a song is sort of an easy way to quiet that thinking brain for a little bit. That's awesome. And you mentioned routines. Um, hockey players, in case you haven't heard, um, have a lot of superstitions. So um, how do you think about routines versus superstitions? 
Yeah, so superstitions tend to be, if I don't do this, I'm going to have a bad game. And it's a lot of luck-based, and um, it tends to change. So oh, I wore this pair of socks or this pair of underwear, and I played really well, so I'm going to keep wearing it. And then you have it for two games, and you're like, oh, it's a bad game, now I've got to switch. So there's no routine to it, and it doesn't really help you. It just kind of makes you feel better. Whereas routines are things that you can do to say, if I do this, I feel more comfortable, I feel more prepared, I feel physically and mentally ready. So it allows you to have that sense of preparedness and readiness. Whereas superstitions are more like, okay, I think I covered this one little area, I should play better. But I don't want somebody who says, okay, let's cross our fingers and hope it works. I want people to say, okay, these are the things I need to do to know that I'm going to be ready. And even if your bus breaks down and you're a little bit late, what are some pieces of your routine that you can still carry on? And that routine is, again, based on when I play my best, what am I feeling, what am I thinking, what am I doing? And then creating a routine that allows you to bring those things out. But most hockey players do have pregame routines. I think they need routines between shifts. I think they need routines between periods. And I think they need routines after games, too. Because how you process a game afterwards can certainly affect how you do practice the next day, or if you have a game the next night, how you handle that. Um, and so parents, sometimes if you're it's a, a young kid, then their parents are driving them home from games. Like that routine is really important because you don't want your child to be in the car stressed out about what you're going to say. So that post-game routine, post-practice routine, they know what they're going to get in the car. And it's not for you as a parent to tell them how they did. It's for you as a parent to teach them to assess how they did. So eventually in life, they're not relying on you. They're not relying on a coach. They know if they had a good game. They know if they had a bad game. And they know what they need to do to get better the next day. Beautiful. You actually got into my next question, which was the car ride home. Um, so, so parents should be telling their kid what they did wrong and how come they didn't score more goals. Is that right? What they should be doing? And that's, Yeah. That's why didn't you get question. ice time? Your coach is awful. <laughs> yeah. No, like, so, you know, with my daughter is a good example. I say, I usually like after a game, I say, okay, how do you think you did? And she's really hard on herself. So she'll like, oh, I didn't do well. I said, well, give me one thing that you felt like you did well at, or, I might say, oh, I know you've been working on using your left foot more at practice. You, I, I saw that you did that. Do you feel like that was a good shot kind of thing? Um, and so kind of trying to tie in things that she's been working on throughout the week and say, well, did you get to use it today in the game at all? Um, and so I think for, for kids, it's really important for them to focus on the good stuff too, because it's really easy for them to focus on the things that they didn't do well, especially competitive, perfectionistic, high achievers. It's saying, okay, tell me what you feel like you did well in the game and what's one thing you want to work on and practice tomorrow that can help you be better. Beautiful. I hope all the parents listen to that one. In fact, I'll be using yeah. that advice and, myself. And so. Yeah, and sometimes they might say, well, how do you think I did afterwards? And just as a parent, be prepared to give them some positive things. But also you can say, I think maybe this could be a little bit better. There was you know, a shift or two where you didn't do this. Just be more consistent. Your game's really close. But they might sometimes be seeking real advice for you, but they also need you to model them how to find the good, even if their team lost 15 nothing. There was something good that they did. Can you help them find that? 
because in those instances, they might not be able to find it for themselves. So as a parent, there might be 10 things you want them to do better. You still need to show them, like, even if it wasn't great, there were some really good things in there too. Gotcha. Okay, we need to start wrapping up, but you did mention something about losing 15 to nothing. Um, what advice do you have for players who play on not such great teams um, and they're consistently losing and they, they clearly have a very losing record, um, but they're a good player. Um, what advice do you have for those players on, on kind of dealing with the um, long duration of a season, but, but having a losing record and, and staying motivated? Well, that's why it's important not to focus just on the outcome. Like, winning a game is kind of the icing on the cake, especially when you're looking at youth hockey. Like, as you get into higher levels of competition, it's different. But at youth levels, it's still saying, you have a lot of room to get better. Your team has a lot of room to get better. And thinking about what's the other team have that we don't and how can I get there? Like, what are my next step in my growth and development? So yeah, it's hard to be on a bad team. Sometimes it's fun too, because you go in and you're like, it doesn't matter what the outcome of this is. We're just trying to score today. Can we get one goal today? Like, that'll be exciting. Or it's, can we play an entire period without an offsides call? Like, that might be what their their goal is, is just kind of learning and developing. But then as an individual, it's talking to them about how can you be a leader? How can you keep your team excited and encouraged and working hard? And how, as a player, can you get better? What what can you learn from being in this game today? And so maybe it is something they've been working on in practice, and that's their goal. It's not to win. It's to do this one thing that we've been working on all week to try to execute this properly in a game situation. And so giving them more process and skill-related goals than outcome-related goals. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of losing teams uh, out there, so it's really thinking about how to stay motivated and 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 staying, you know, where your feet are, as you kind of said, uh, as you kind of deal with that situation. All right, so I, um, a lot of what we do here on the Champs App Podcast is talk about recruiting. I know you've obviously been involved with the um, NHL draft and, and interviewing players beforehand. Um, college teams, um, also interview players, but they're a lot younger, especially on the women's side, where, you know, uh, you know, starting June 15th, they start interviewing players that are 15, 16, 17. Um, what, what, what's your perspective on kind of um, how, how to prepare for those kind of conversations that you have with coaches um, as, a, as a young woman, you know, trying to figure out where, where to attend college, not just where to play hockey, but also kind of which school you want to attend? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've found with particularly teenage girls when they're looking to be recruited, they care a lot about what the people around them think. Like, I have to go to Minnesota. I have to go to Boston College. Like, they see these teams and they feel if they don't go to one of these big universities that are, like, known for their hockey, then somehow that's a, a failure in their eyes. They may not want to go to their school because that's not the lifestyle they want. It's really hard to be a Division I athlete at a, at a key institution. So both academically, athletically, it's really, really hard. So I think before they even start the recruiting process is to go in open-minded and know what they want out of their college experience. Talk to athletes at different colleges, whether it's hockey or other sports. I'm sure there's somebody in their town or that their family knows that they can talk to about what it's like to be playing at a major university, mid-major university, D2, and how they balance all of that. Because you might have somebody that doesn't want the pressure of 
having to be a high performer on a high performing team. They just want to play hockey and they, they want to have a good academic institution too. And so first talking to them about put aside what other people might think about where you go and think about what you want and where you'll thrive and where you'll be happiest. And so if their passion is more academic than athletic, that might change the conversation a little bit too. And so getting them to think about what their priorities are going to be. And as a 15, 16 year old, they may not have a clue. And so it might be as simple as, well, I wanna go somewhere warm and not somewhere cold. Okay, well, great. That narrows it down a little bit then, especially in the hockey world. Um, so I, I think getting them to recognize that they need to focus on themselves and what they want and that they're, it's not just about how do I get into the school? It's about what do I want from a school? And so that helps with the conversations because then when they're talking to the coaches, it's about how can I let the coach know who I am and what I offer? And how can I get more information from that coach too about what they offer and what their school offers that might interest me? And I think for, it's hard, but not always jumping on the first opportunity, like seeing what you really, really want. Um, I actually had a conversation with a college coach the other day about how the NIL and the trade and all the, the portals um, are going to affect people. And so I think that's something for athletes to think about too, because now in some of their minds, there's the, well, I can always transfer. And I think that's a really bad attitude for players to go into a college with. Yes, you might have to because you get there and academically it doesn't work or athletically there's not a fit or there was a coaching change. And that should sort of be a last resort. I think for athletes going in, can I see myself here for four years? Is this somewhere I will thrive, I will develop, and I'll reach my potential? Um, and priority shouldn't be, am I going to play as a freshman? It should be, what are my four years, five years here going to be like? Beautiful. All right, we need to, we need to wrap up. Um, I know you have some recommendations on um, journaling and apps. Any really quick advice on like kind of tools that uh, players can use to help with their mental performance? Yeah, I, I just, for me, the number one is the earlier you start, the better you're going to be. Don't wait until you really need it to start doing it. Like develop the mental habits along with your physical habits. And it makes those transitions to higher levels of performance easier. So just journaling, keeping track of your mentality, keeping track of physically what you're doing, how you're developing, just keeping track of everything that you're learning, I think is important. And then um, even things like meditation, there's some great apps out there for that. Um, the Calm app is really good. Headspace is really good just to get people focused for whether it's five minutes or 50 minutes a day getting them to focus on being in the moment, clearing their mind, because especially as they get to higher level of performance, that ability to just tune out the real world and focus in the moment for a few minutes is really, really important. And, and, and it's fun important? Yes. Number one, like if you don't love it, I don't know why you're doing it. It's hard sport. It's physically demanding. It's mentally demanding. If you're going to stick with it, you have to have a passion for it. And yeah, enjoy it. Like you can compete and you can be serious, but you can be having a lot of fun at the same time. Amy, I want to thank you so much for doing this. You're very generous with your time and uh, certainly generous with all your uh, thoughts and, and perspective on, on how to improve performance. So thank you much so much for doing this. Yeah, I'm glad I could help out and hope the, the listeners take something away from it.
And um, if folks wanted to get in touch with you or reach out to you, what's the best way? Uh, anything on social media or any other methods to, to, to learn more about what you do? Yeah, so I have a website. It's capexconsulting.com. And then my email is amykimball at capexconsulting.com. So they can reach out either way. Follow me on Twitter if they want. Amy Kimball, nothing, <laughs> nothing too crazy, just simply my name. I really want to thank Amy for coming on the podcast. I learned a ton about the little tips and tricks that can be used to improve player performance. Hopefully, you'll be able to apply some of her insights to your game. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to share more about the app in Chance App. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know I spend a lot of time talking with coaches, parents, and players about the hockey recruiting process. One of the key questions that people want to know is, how does a player get noticed by college coaches? While there are many ways to be discovered, the easiest way to get on a college's radar is to send a coach an email and provide them all the information they need to assess if you are a player worth keeping their eyes on. That's where the app part of Champs app comes in. Champs app was designed based on all the conversations and feedback we received about the recruiting process, and we built a tool to help players and coaches connect with a ton of the information they want to know. It all starts with creating a free, beautiful Champs app profile. After that, there are some pretty magical things that can happen to help make the recruiting process a little less overwhelming. Your Champs app profile includes all the basic academic, personal, and athletic information coaches want to know. Then, by including video, schedule information, and your coach's contact details, colleges can easily start their evaluation process. You just copy and paste your personalized link and send it to coaches so they can see your public player profile without even having to log in or create a Champs app account. Or you can connect directly with coaches on Champs app. More and more coaches are creating their own Champs app profiles and connecting with players themselves every day. Now coaches can have all the information they need to assess where you might fit in their recruiting plans. Even better, college coaches can track your progress throughout the winter and showcase seasons, because as you make changes to your profile, coaches will get notified to your updates. And in the future, we will be adding even more amazing features to improve your visibility to the recruiting process and hopefully increase your odds of success. If you wanna see what a player or coach profile looks like before you start your own, look in the show notes to see some examples. My kids and I have used Champs app for their recruiting process. In fact, my son was invited to a AAA tryout thanks to his Champs app profile. So go to www.champs.app and start your player or coach profile. It only takes about 15 to 20 minutes to complete most of your key information. Good luck, and please let us know how it helped with your recruiting journey.